Hello and welcome to the WorkWell podcast. The World Health Organization has identified the workplace as a priority area for health promotion. Why then does the word work have such a negative and unhealthy connotation for so many people? Think about it. We spend so much of our adult lives at work. Why should it be in a role or in an environment that doesn't support our health and well-being? My name is Brian Crook, and I'm on a mission to make workplaces more positive places to be and to make our working day as healthy and productive as possible. Join me on the Work Well podcast as I interview workplace well-being thought leaders and industry professionals to discuss how employers, employees, and entrepreneurs can lead the way by creating and sustaining the healthy, safe, and well workplaces of the future. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the WorkWell podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with AJ Products, who are leading the way in ergonomic and active workplace furniture solutions at ajproducts.ie. Today on the WorkWell podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Emily Pearson. Emily has over 20 years experience working in the mental health, substance misuse, and health and social care fields. Emily is co-founder of Our Minds Work and recently developed the first workplace mental health leadership development apprenticeship program in the UK. Emily has a lot to say on mental health programs in the workplace, and I know she's going to challenge your existing understanding of how we support the mental health of our colleagues in the workplace. So for that reason alone, this is such a worthwhile conversation. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Emily Pearson. Emily, hello and welcome to the WorkWell podcast. Thanks for having us, Brian. Really looking forward to our chat today. Me too, yeah. So, I mean, first things first, how are you? I'm good. I've just had a lovely break away. Nice long weekend up to Sky in Scotland. Absolutely stunning place. The sun was shining. We saw waterfalls, lots of lots greenery plants all the things that we connect to actually just switching off from work and enjoying you know our experience in our these lovely environments that we have so yes feeling very refreshed now thank you that sounds fantastic I'm feeling quite refreshed even just listening to that (laughs) you've certainly been looking after your own well-being this weekend which is which is great how are things with you how is life you're based in Newcastle if I'm not mistaken that's right. Yes, we're up in the northeast of England, but um, due to the amazing function we now call Zoom, I mean, how did we ever work without Zoom? <laughs> it's been amazing. Yes, even though we are based up in the northeast, we are delivering to clients not only all over the country, but globally as well. So very, very busy time for us. That's that's a nice problem to have. And tell us about you and, and your background. I know you've got an organization, you've co-founded an organization called Our Minds Work, and we will come to that in just a moment. But you've got a very interesting journey on how you got to this point. Could you share that with the listeners? Definitely. I'll try and put 20 years in the space <laughs> of 60 seconds for you. If I start rabbiting on, Brian, you're just going to have to edit us out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, this journey has been a long journey for me. I probably started to experience 
symptoms of poor mental health quite early on in my teens after my parents' marriage broke down. So you can imagine, you know, when you're a teenager, the world is very, very strange anyway, trying to find your identity and who you are and who you connect with and school and all of those demands that we had back in those days. And that loss of the family unit. My father, when he left home, he actually went and left the country for a couple of years as well. So I experienced quite a big loss at a young age and started to experience symptoms of poor mental health, which really kind of took a a more serious turn in my kind of late teens, early 20s. I had my daughter at the the very young age of 18, so very, very new mum, and uh, was actually in an abusive relationship as well. So by the time I was 20 year old, I was experiencing severe mental illness. And I had a bunch of diagnoses at that point. So I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and an eating disorder. A bit like a game of bingo, isn't it? But when I look back at what my experience was then. I don't feel as if I had all these disorders. What I was doing was a very normal reaction to traumatic experiences throughout a period of time where you don't really have the resilience and coping strategies to be able to really understand and be self-aware around what's going on. So I'd always had an interest in humans, connecting with people, how the mind works. So when I was around 19 years old, I had my first job working in health and social care, which was working with the elderly mentally ill. And I loved it. It was amazing. You know, absolutely brilliant experience to be helping people in those later ages who did have, you know, very kind of serious mental health problems and being able to make an impact on people's lives. So that was really where I first got into working in health and social care alongside my own kind of mental health struggles as well. And I think I used that for a certain amount as part of my own recovery because I thought, you know what, this is what I really want to do. I not only want to help myself, I want to help other people. And that's when I went back to college and actually studied studied counselling. I started to study psychology and then I was like, actually, this, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't taking me down the road that I wanted to go down. So I actually went down the road of health and social care to actually work face-to-face with people more around kind of residential work so that you were really immersed into their lives and their experiences rather than being, you know, a psychologist that sees somebody for an hour a week. I really wanted to be immersed in that line of work. So that was my journey, start really working in health and social care. And over the past 20 years, I've worked in young people services from secure. This is young people who are in a secure environment due to the risk of harm to themselves or others. Criminal justice system, looked after care, drug and alcohol services. So very, very diverse range of services working with children and young people. And then went into adult services, working again, very diverse settings, homelessness, dual diagnosis, drugs and alcohol. And then six years ago, I had the opportunity to work with National Mind on probably the first ever mental health workplace programme. And that programme was funded by the government. 
And it was specifically for the emergency services. So the, the, the program was called the Blue Light Program. And I was part of an amazing team that designed and delivered pilot of this program to actually change the culture in emergency services around mental health. So, you know, this was an amazing experience. Absolutely love the programme. The programme is now embedded across the whole of England. It continues to be part funded by the government as well. And it's all about helping emergency personnel to, you know, increase their levels of resilience, help the culture to impact prevention and more supportive measures in place to support personnel who are working probably one of the most stressful environments that, you know, we could ever think about. And really help to reduce stigma and create a very, very large supportive network. So they do a lot of amazing work there. But that was really me starting to work in the workplace mental health sector, which was very new. You know, six years ago, nobody was talking about mental health in the workplace. So I was very, very fortunate to be part of that first ever program really of actually exploring what mental health in the workplace actually meant. Excellent yeah and you certainly I mean you've had experience of working with as you mentioned such a diverse and broad mix of groups and backgrounds there and I imagine you were able to bring all that to to National Mind and the work that you were doing and so you had your experience then with National Mind what what was it then that you decided you went and you, you co-founded Our Minds Work three or four years ago is that right? Yes, that's right. So we're just coming up to the end of our third year next month, and that has flown over. And the the change for me was I had a bit of a moment where I saw the success of the Blue Light program, and I thought, you know, if we can do this in the emergency services, we can do this in any industry. And what I wanted to be able to do, and something that I've, I've done throughout my career, is, is to innovate is to create new ways of designing and delivering interventions throughout working with children and young people. You've got to be very, very creative to get them to sit and, you know, talk to you about what they're going through and their experiences. So I've always found that that's definitely one of my strengths. And it was the same with this scenario here. I wanted to be able to design new ways of creating mentally healthy workplaces and one of the ways that I saw a lot of money and time were being invested to was mental health first aid training. And I just saw this huge problem with that, a lot of risks that it could potentially create for organisations. So I wanted to do something very, very different that was based on safeguarding people, creating mentally healthy workplace cultures, and actually bringing all my years of health and social care experience and qualifications and the models that we use for behaviour and culture change actually into this workplace model as well. So I was very, very fortunate. Again, you know, I feel very, very lucky. I had three businessmen who had heard me talking at various different events and they were all really changed by what I was talking about, obviously, people weren't talking about mental health in the workplace back then. So it was a very, very new topic. And these guys approached me and said, look, why don't we do something together? So that's why I'm a co-founder. Um, I have three other business partners who all financially invested in our minds work and said, look, we'll put the money in. You just do what you do best. And that was how our minds work was created. And here we are three years later. We have some very unique programs. All of our programs are based on culture change. 
rather than just kind of one-off initiatives. We use a social ecological model, which has been around in health and social care from the 80s that we focus on creating culture change around. And at the back end of summer last year, we launched the first ever workplace mental health leadership diploma, which is actually an apprenticeship uh, funded by the apprenticeship levy. So, you know, that has been an amazing experience to do and had a lot of demand quite quickly for that as well. So it's been a very exciting time. Very exciting. And before we get into just more of the details of some of the programs and some of the risks, maybe you called out that you see with some ongoing training. Tell me, what was that move like from, so you, you've been an employee, if you like, for your most of your career, and all of a sudden here you are now going out on your own, if you like, with your own business. What was that like and what has that change been like just on a personal level for the last few years? Yeah, wow. Great question. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> Do you know what, Brian? I think I have learned a lot over the past three years And what it's really challenged me to do is to embed everything that I talk about when it comes to creating mentally healthy workplaces into my leadership style and really live and breathe, you know, what we actually do. (laughs) So, you know, that has been, you know, a real live opportunity for me to do that and really helped us to reflect on when you are in these leadership roles, We rely on having good mental health ourselves to be able to create a mentally healthy workplace because when we are struggling with our mental health, culture is created by communication. So we communicate in lots of different ways, nonverbal communication, the language used, the way we speak to each other. And communication for me becomes a little bit disrupted when we're struggling with our own mental health. We find it a lot harder to communicate effectively with people. We find it much harder to communicate in more positive and effective ways. So then we start to see, you know, impacts to the culture. You know, then people become unhappy because as a leader, you're not communicating effectively with them, which then creates changes in our behaviours. And so that has been a really kind of major reflective part for me is having to kind of really truly live and breathe what I say workplaces should be doing and have really tested that out, especially during the impact of COVID. So within our first year, 2018 into 2019, we were flying brand new business. You know, you're either going to succeed or you're going to fail in that first year. We succeeded we we did really well. We actually made a profit in our first year. It was a small amount, but still, you know, not many workplaces, new businesses can can achieve that. So, you know, it was really, really positive first year. And then six months into our second first year, we were hit by COVID as a small business, small start of business. We were actually sat there in, you know, the kind of springtime looking at a contingency plan, you know, how we were going to survive through this. And That really was a test for me personally, because we had to put people on furlough, small team anyway, so everybody was on furlough apart from me. And I spent probably about three or four months just looking at ways we could completely pivot the business and get out there and help our clients, because all of our clients had had to put a hold on to our contracts 
because of COVID, everybody had done the same. Everybody had gone into fight or flight mode. You know, what do we need to do to focus on this? But one of the biggest impacts of COVID in the workplace was people's mental health. So we knew we had to make sure that we were there to be able to support our clients and their employees going through that difficult time. That was probably one of the biggest personal challenges for me was actually getting through that period and wanting to help others and also, you know, concerned about your own business and the people in your team, you're an employer now. So that particularly was a challenge for us. Yeah. I can imagine, you know, as someone in a similar position who was in the, the world of work and an employee transitioning a number of years ago as well, that makes a lot of sense. And thanks so much for sharing that experience because it is, uh, it, it's just different, isn't it? It's, uh, I find it very hard to switch off, actually, I must say. But beforehand, the like Friday evening came, 5 p.m., half five, that was it. I could park, work for the weekend and, and get stuck in again on Monday morning. But if it's your own business, it, it's just different. It's hard to switch things off. And plus, you'll, you'll try and probably try and find some time, unfortunately, even in the weekend or on free time to, to maybe get catch up on a bit of work, catch up on a bit of business, or maybe it's even just idea generation. So it is kind of hard to separate the two, but it is important to make that time for yourself. It is definitely in your idea generation. My brain never switches off. Hands the wheel, yeah. It's constantly trying to think of new ways of working. I know. I think if I was a genius, (laughs) I think I would, you know, I I think I would have been a female Einstein, but I I don't have the level of intelligence (laughs) to be that great. But that's exactly what my brain does, constantly thinking of new ways of working, how to improve things, how to make things better for people. Because everything that I've done for the past, you know, 23 years is about improving people's lives. And if we can improve people's lives, we can improve workplaces. If we can improve workplaces, we improve people's lives (laughs) because we're talking about humans. That's what we're actually talking about. So when we're looking at, um, we need a human response for these human problems that we're experiencing so yeah always thinking always thinking hard to switch off true true but but speaking of uh, improving people's lives you called out risks there with with like let's say the awareness training or something like mental health first aid which is incredibly popular here in ireland i know it is in the uk too and indeed further afield in you know australia where it was first developed what are the concerns that you see with the training, with the mental health, the two-day mental health first-day training that, that you're seeing in, let's say, in, in the UK workplaces that, that you work with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the first kind of problems that I started to recognise very quickly, I mean, I knew about mental health first aid way before it became a product in the workplace because it was designed for the community. So it had been around, you know, probably about five years previous to it being marketed into the workplace. And if you think about what Mental Health First Aid did for what it was designed for, anyone in the community could attend. It helped to give you a bigger understanding of the medical model around mental illness, mental health conditions and problems, but also provided you with a framework that you could use to support somebody who may be experiencing a crisis. You know, if you're crossing the bridge or sat on a park bench and you are intervening using this knowledge and skill, you know, you're there to support somebody until the emergency services arrive. Yeah. You walk away and chances are you're never going to see that person again. In the workplace, we've then called the mental health first aid us. So we've actually turned that from just a knowledge and skill into a role. 
that we've now given people a role with a huge amount of responsibility. Yeah. And in any workplace, when we are going to design a service with people in that service who have a specific role and responsibility, nobody ever just goes, who wants to work in this service? Put your hand up, we'll send you on some training, and then we'll just send you away to crack on with that role. Nobody's ever done that ever. You know, that's why we have these very, very specific recruitment processes and procedures and onboarding and training and support and progression in the role. That's why we have that. It's there to keep people and the service safe. So that first thing was this transference of um, this two-day training course, generally a two-day training course, that was more about just giving people a little bit of skill and knowledge to support anybody outside of the workplace actually into a role in the workplace which had no recruitment process to it at all so straight away I was like oh hold on a minute working in health and social care you know that when you are in a role where you are there to support or communicate or keep other people safe you have lots of training you have clear policies and procedures and guidance on how to respond in these incidents. You have very, very clear monitoring that you're doing your job effectively and you're keeping people and yourself safe. You know, there is a lot to actually making sure that safeguarding people is a priority when we're talking about mental ill health, especially suicide. So I saw this huge, massive gap and that for me was a massive risk. So. I wonder if it would be good to show you a little infographic and show the people who are watching. And as I explain it, it's just a, a great way of actually showing you how this works, in my mind anyway. Yeah, go, go <laughs> for it. Share, share away there and we, we can talk through this for, for those that are listening yeah. in on, on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So this is just specifically around mental health first aid style initiatives. And there's lots of them out there. What we did at Our Minds Work is we created a blueprint. So this is, uh, tell you a little bit about what a blueprint and service design is about. When you go to a McDonald's anywhere in the world, they're all exactly the same. They look the same. They feel the same. Everybody's doing the same thing. They're using the same words and language, the same policies, the same procedures. Even the buildings are built exactly the same. So that's a blueprint. Yeah, McDonald's have a blueprint. So that means that no matter where they set up a new McDonald's, everybody does the same thing. This is really, really important about creating trust and safety in a brand. Yeah. So that's what we designed. So we designed this for the implementation of what we call mental health advocates rather than mental health first aiders. And the reason why we call them advocates is because the role is a little bit different. What we want people in the workplace to be able to do is to do more prevention and proactive work rather than wait until somebody's unwell, spotting signs and symptoms, listening and signposting them on. So the role is very, very different. So if we just think about the difference between kind of the train and just to start off with. If you do mental health first aid style initiatives, it generally just tends to be two-day training and that's it. And the training content's generally focused on signs and symptoms, mental health conditions, the medical model, how to listen and signpost somebody. 
and to support them, obviously, in that moment. Think about this in a, a little bit more of a kind of visual way is once those people have trained the two days, you go, OK, bye, go away and be mental health first aiders. And for me, this is a bit like training people to implement a specific service in your workplace but they've got no building that they sit in. They've got no infrastructure around them. They've got no additional support. Nobody knows what they're doing. So it's basically like you've trained all these people and you can imagine them all being stood outside in the car park. It's raining, so they've got no protection. People are walking past them going, why are those people there? So people don't know why they're there. You know, nobody really knows what's going on, including the mental health first aid as they were stood there going, what do we do next? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no infrastructure around them. Whereas when you implement something like a service blueprint and they have very, very clear roles and responsibilities and have gone through some processes, which I'll talk us through, you've actually created them this lovely building outside. You know, it has a roof on it. It has windows. People can look in and go, oh, that's what they're doing there. These are mental health advocates. I can go there if I need some kind of support or I want to find out who I need to contact if I've got any type of problems in these areas. And then it has doors. Okay, brilliant. If I want to speak to somebody, I know that there's these specific access points. I know how to contact them, where I can have a discussion. What does confidentiality mean? So not only do you create the protection and the infrastructure to support these people, you're making sure that they're promoted in a really transparent way. People understand what they're there for. They then know where to access the service if they need to and how to do that as well. So very, very different visual ways of just looking and it kind of people stood in the rain nobody knows what we're doing versus you know people really do know what they're doing and people understand how to engage in that service as well so one of the other kind of gaps that tends to be missing is what we call a safer recruitment process I think this may begin to be changed a little bit now I have seen some providers of mental health first aid kind of recommending that mental health first aid is a go through a recruitment process however we want them to go through a safer recruitment process and it to be clear kind of best practice so most mental health first initiatives are recruited just by saying who wants to go on who wants to be a mental health first aid uh, they go on the training and it just isn't enough and they don't know what they're signing up to really they're, they're interested in the area you know they're, they're passionate about it which is really good and they're volunteering but they actually don't know what they're signing up to. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people who want to, to be a mental health first aider, it always comes from a good place. Yeah. It always comes from a place of, I want to make a difference in people's lives. Generally, will come from because I've experienced something similar. So we know that we have people who have a want to change people's lives, but even more so, we need to protect those people and the people who they're going to be, you know, engaging with. So when we look at how we would recommend best practice in our blueprint, we have a very, very clear guidance on not just what a mental health first aid uh, or what we call mental health advocates role and responsibilities are, but also the lead for those as well who's responsible for these people that mental health advocate lead is very very responsible for keeping these people safe and the service safe also they're providing a service to the colleagues 
It's a peer-to-peer service that they're providing. We've got to make sure that there's very, very clear roles and responsibilities for those in the role and also for those in the lead role who are responsible for them. Clear guidance on the expectations of the role. Yeah? You may potentially have to sit with somebody who's experienced in an emotional crisis and are talking about suicide. Yeah, um, I've dealt with those situations hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the 20 years. They never get easier. Yeah, they're always very, very difficult to manage, to think on your feet, and you constantly have to go back to the ongoing training and development that you get to actually support people during those sessions, but then also know how to support yourself afterwards or even get additional support when it's needed from um, what we would class as a buddying system internally or even clinical support because they don't always go well, yeah. We have seen and heard and I have experienced them personally where these situations don't go very well at all. People get up and leave as soon as you, you know, say, look, because of the risk that I feel like you're under, I now need to breach confidentiality. And then it turns from, you know, crisis management in that situation where you're actually having to ring the police to to try and find this person and do welfare checks. These are really, really scary times for people, very, very stressful. So we have to make sure that we've got clear expectations on what it is that you're about to engage in in this role. But also clear expectations from the employer as well. You know, this isn't a role where you have to be available 100% of the time when you're at work. This is actually a voluntary role. And humans in this role will experience times where they need to be able to step out of that role for their own well-being, their own mental health, or maybe they're just too busy at work in their paid role to actually engage in this as well. So we we need to make it very, very clear what the expectations are for an employer's perspective, but also somebody as well who wants to be in this role and what it is that they need to do, especially with our mental health advocates. We make it very, very clear that their expectation is to run and um, raise campaigns and really share information to ensure that everybody has access to additional support without them even having to come through a mental health advocate. So they're aware of lots of services that are available constantly in a preventative and early intervention way rather than having to come directly to an advocate. So the role, you you know, you need time to engage in it as well. And then you've got your formal application and recruitment process in there as well. You know, what, why do you want to be a mental health first aid or a mental health advocate? Is this the right time for you? You know, what um, safety and strengths might you need? So working in health and social care had a role where I had to set up a counselling service. And one of the things that we do when we run a counselling service is we also need to protect the therapists. And we do that by conducting a triage. So, for example, you're going to match that individual's needs with the right therapist who can provide that yeah we need to think about this in the same way how do we protect these mental health advocates 
strengths by doing this kind of safety, what we call a safety and strengths exercise. And this is about, you know, what are your strengths? So, for example, it may be, well, actually, I've gone through drug and alcohol recovery. So this is a great strength of mine. And I can really support people who may be going through something similar. But what is the safety that we need to think about? This may be that, you know, you went through domestic violence early on in your life. And actually, you really haven't recovered from that. And that could be quite triggering for you. So that could actually set somebody back in their recovery if they were then connected with somebody who wanted to come and talk about domestic violence and domestic abuse. Once you open the door to talk about mental health, you are just basically saying, talk to us about anything that causes human suffering, anything. And two-day training doesn't, doesn't prepare people for that. Hey everyone, a really quick note to tell you about our online learning hub, the WorkWell Institute. If you're enjoying the episode today and are interested in learning more about well-being and work, then check out the courses we have on offer at workwellinstitute.org. You'll find programs for you and your colleagues on managing stress, how to boost energy, well-being champion training, and our flagship program for well-being leaders called Developing a Workplace Wellness Program That Lasts. There's a free preview available for all of the courses at workwellinstitute.org. Now, back to our conversation. You know, thanks, first of all, for raising all these points. Because, I mean, mental health first aid, the guys and the girls delivering it, uh, they're really skilled in the area. They know what they're talking about. The training course itself, it's a really good program. What we're saying here is like the gaps are the problem here. So the before the recruitment process, plus then, and I see this all too often in organizations. So you, the mental health first traders are trained if you check back in with that organization in a year's time, what, what has happened with those mental health first aiders? Chances are they've just been kind of hanging out. Now, some organizations are reasonably proactive, might share the, um, the first aiders' details, get their names out there. They might have particular branding they might use to talk about their, their first aiders and who they are. But there's no support in place for those first aiders. There's no safeguarding, as you mentioned, in the two-day training course that they've been exposed to and you know, really serious topics, serious issues. And there's obviously no safeguards in place for those first aiders for the potentially challenging conversations that, that they may face. So it's the gaps around the training is really what's at issue here. Absolutely. Without a doubt, those gaps are, for me, the biggest risks because it is completely missing all of these safeguarding priorities all the way through the process. Now, even down to, you know, we can actually DBS check people. You would DBS check people in any health and social care role. If we were a mental health charity, yeah, who was recruiting volunteers to come and work with people in a mental health first aid type of role, the first thing that you would do through that recruitment process is DBS check them. <laughs> so why wouldn't we do it in the workplace as well? We've got to really take this best practice and implement it in, into the workplace. And I think that's why there's been such a gap. I think mental health first aid initiatives have been promoted and marketed as something very, very simple without really looking at this wider implementation process in the workplace and hardly ever 
do employers have health and social care experts who work in them employment who know what should be in place to safely implement an initiative like this? So it's really been a, a huge gap, which I feel like we're helping a lot of clients to try and fill. But the kind of third element of what's missing for us is exactly what you just said there, Brian. So, okay, you've got the infrastructure, you've built them this amazing building, it's got access points, people are safe, they know what the role is, you know, it's very, very transparent. We understand exactly what this service is there to provide. We know that the people who have been trained inside of that service has gone through a very, very clear recruitment and safe process. They're there, you know, they're engaged, they're active, they know how to safeguard themselves and each other. They're following employment legislation, which is about the duty of care to protect the health and well-being and safety of employees. You know, that is the, the, probably the big umbrella for all of this as well. But then once they're in there, how do you know that they've got the right training for the role? How are they onboarded into the role? Who is providing ongoing support for them and ongoing training and development for them as well? So, you know, there, there is all this other stuff that needs to happen. And they're all the, the gaps that we see outside of this two-day training course. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of guys and girls listening in here who have Maybe they've gone down the route of mental health first aid training already in their organization or, or they're considering it. The training itself is good training. So what can they do now to support those first aiders that have that have taken the training? Is it putting that structure in place, that safeguarding in place now? There's options there for them. Yes, absolutely. A gap analysis. You know, what do you have and what do you need? And you can start to look at an action plan from there. You know, there are a couple of things to think about. Obviously, the infrastructure. What are the policies, procedures, role and responsibilities of those people in that role that may be missing? Including the safeguarding policy and procedure that also covers safeguarding a colleague who may be at risk of significant harm to themselves or others. A lot of companies may have a safeguarding policy in place. However, it tends to be focused on if they have apprentices in the workplace or they're working with children and young people and completely miss out their own colleagues that they should be thinking about safeguarding as well. So the, there's looking at your policies and procedures and your, your infrastructure. Then look at the individuals. Do they have the right training? Do they have effective support? Are they being monitored? Are you collecting data? Are, you know, how are you ensuring that the service that you're providing is doing what it's supposed to do, it's effective, and it's being monitored? And you can do that really, really well by collecting data that doesn't need to be reported, that identifying anyone. What we need to understand is, are people working safely? And is it actually making an impact on people's lives and doing what we want it to do? And then looking at what else do they need, you know, what ongoing training and development and support might they need to continue in their role? Because a two-day training course on every sign and symptom of majority of mental health problems you can think of doesn't really open up the development for people who are in that role. Like I said, in people are going to come and talk about anything that can cause human suffering. There are a lot of topics that aren't included in mental health first aid style training. 
that people may need to come and talk about. So, you know, how do we engage in these challenging conversations? How do we make sure that we understand our boundaries in, in these discussions? How do we make sure that people are signposted appropriately? How do we appropriately check in with them a week later to make sure that they're doing okay? You know, all of this stuff is all part of your blueprint and your framework and your infrastructure for keeping people safe. For the, I guess, the volunteer first aiders or advocates, how much of a role should they have in shaping, let's say, the, the role or responsibility of a first aider or an advocate at whatever the organization is? I deliver well-being champion training. Now, it's, it's, it's a broader level. It's creating a shared ownership for well-being across the organization. But as part of that, it's kind of really empowering for the champions in the very first session. We look at what are the roles and responsibilities we should have in this organization as a well-being champion. So, so the champions themselves define the role and responsibility. But is, is that possible in a scenario like this where we're actually going quite deep in, in the area of mental health? Should they have a, a say in, in defining the role? Probably not to a certain extent. And that's why when we implement our blueprint, we actually have a role and responsibilities template. Okay. So this is kind of, this is best practice. Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. If you're going to make any changes to that, you need to have a clear understanding of why you're going to make that as a change. So, you know, adding things into somebody's role and responsibility or even taking them out, you know, why do you want to make that change? And who could it protect? potentially impact with regards to safeguarding safeguarding people it should be a priority within anything that we do in the workplace should be are people going to be harmed by it you know if so then we need to mitigate that harm and, and put procedures in in place to do that that's probably kind of from my perspective is is probably not and that's why we created that best practice role and responsibility template for our clients to to implement news of course yeah yeah very good i'm sure you've had this conversation before i've had it quite a few times senior leader in an organization they'll tell you um oh no we we've done mental health we have our first aiders and we have an eap program so we're, we're done <laughs> the, the well-intentioned HR professionals that are listening in now or look guys looking to make a difference in their organization how do they convince those leaders look well you know that that's maybe that's a start but look you need to look at the gap analysis you need to look at the, the bigger picture here the support structure the safeguarding how do you have that conversation yeah definitely yeah we hear we hear it a lot and this is one of the reasons why we created our culture change progression model. Sometimes I hate it as well because <laughs> you'll have somebody who sounds just so passionate. Yes, we've done this. We've got mental health first aiders in place. And, they, you know, they're so pleased with what they've done. And then we go through this benchmarking process. And I feel like I kind of take the wind out of the sails a little bit. And I feel so bad about that because, you know, I want people to be passionate about what they're doing. But what it really does show is, is the progression and what it really takes to create culture change. And I think this is for me, I think I want to inspire people to start thinking about this a little bit differently in the workplace. You know, we've we've really labelled mental health in the workplace as a very, very small part of a strategy that needs to fit into your well-being policy and procedure and what we want to 
to change the way that people think about is actually thinking about not mental health, but organizational culture. Because everything that falls under mental health comes from creating a mentally healthy workplace culture. So if we can aim at creating a mentally healthy workplace culture, then people's mental health will either naturally be better due to the prevention of work-related stress, um, leaders and managers who actually have the capabilities to create and lead culture change, everybody working to the common goal of creating a mentally healthy workplace so that the workplace can actually thrive. And then we start to see higher performance, lower levels of turnover. So actually the, the outcomes from aiming for a mentally healthy workplace are all the things that business leaders want anyway. But what we can do is focus on instead transformational leadership for culture change so that we actually design operational excellence with, with mental healthy, mentally healthy workplaces in mind so that we get all those amazing outcomes out the back of it, but that we also have the capabilities to actually not only prevent mental health problems from occurring in the workplace, can create psychological safety in the workplace, can actually intervene much earlier and support people all the way through sickness, absence and return to work using a best practice framework. So if we think about that, you know, who does that? It's not the mental health first aiders. <laughs> it's your policies, it's your procedures, it's your, your manager and your leadership capabilities, it's your HR team, it's your health and safety. It's everybody in that workplace that need to be engaged into that common aim of creating a mentally healthy workplace on all of those different layers and levels. It's the organizational approach, targeting at an organizational level processes, procedures, the controls, as opposed to what almost every organization does and just targets the individual, individual with a Absolutely. resilience workshop here in the, in the mental health first aid. It's, it's very much passing responsibility on to a small group of, of individuals within the workplace. So yeah, it's absolutely that, that organizational focus and, and right. looking to build that culture over time. Yeah, that is exactly right. And it's really interesting when you look at it through the social ecological model. So through the social ecological model, you actually have the individual in the center, which a lot of initiatives, like you say, are generally focused. They're focused on the initiative and the individual to look after their own mental health. Or the next layer out, which is these kind of supportive networks, there are a select couple of people in a workplace who have the role of mental health first aider who can provide very, very low level, you know, in the moment support and signposting. But actually for true culture change, you need to keep going out into those wider, wider levels, which are about organisational change. They're about widening the support networks. They're about changing policy you know, creating capabilities so that everybody is engaged in that common aim of creating a mentally healthy workplace and has the capabilities to do that. So, yes, that's exactly how we how we would look at it. And it is that layered approach that we need to take. Well, there's an awful lot of talk at the moment about the future of work and what the future of the workplace will, will look like. Any thoughts on what does the future of mental health in the workplace look like and, and mental health promotion and support in the workplace? And any thoughts on that? What, what, does, what does that look like in the future? 
There's a really interesting example that's happening right now of what happens when you don't create a mentally healthy workplace culture, the logistics industry. So right now, even pre-COVID, my husband has been an HGV driver. It's his profession. He joined the army. That's what he did in the army. He left the army eight years later and he's been doing it ever since. So he's a professional HGV driver. And... So I have very clear insight into what this industry is like to work for. And currently we have a massive deficit of drivers. And we've heard a lot of people saying you just need to pay them more money. Obviously, that is definitely what needs to happen. You know, HGV drivers and, you know, the logistics industry is an essential for the economy to actually function for us to eat, for medical supplies to be delivered. Without them, we are nothing. So we really need to ensure that, you know, these profession they are professional drivers. You know, you and I, Brian, could not get in a big truck and try and drive it and do deliveries. I'm telling you that. No you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, you know, this is it, it is a profession. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can can just go out and do this job. So, yes, there is a huge issue around wages, but it is so much more than that. The logistics industry is not a mentally healthy workplace culture. It is full of kind of downfalls, really, to working in the industry. There is no home life balance for the majority of workers who go out on a Monday, come back on a Friday, and they generally work around 60 hours 60 hour weeks you know this isn't your normal kind of Monday to Friday nine or five job they're on their own a lot of the time they don't have well-being check-ins from the manager nobody's ringing them to check in how they're doing but they're ringing to ask them why they haven't got to the next delivery point in time yeah so there's a lot of demands there's a lot of pressure it's not good work you know if you think about the 20 year olds coming through now you know how many of them are, are dying to become an HGV driver where they can be sat on their own in a tin can for five days a week you know this industry to actually attract talent needs a complete transformational change so if we want to look at the future of work we can start off with looking at what happens when we don't do this when we don't create good work for people, when we don't attract talent by having psychologically safe workplaces, where we don't make it a good place to work, where our brand and our reputation isn't seen to be, I want to work with these people. They're making a difference. I have purpose there and I'm looked after. My health and well-being is looked after. There's job progression. My manager knows how to support me. My manager's got great skills to be able to support the team and lead an effective team forward. If you don't have that, how many more industries or organisations are going to end up with the problems that the logistics industry has at the moment, but has done for a long time? You know, the role of the HGV driver, which is essential to our economy, is really really poor nobody wants to do that job and that's why they you know they're trying to find ways to attract people attract workers into it so the lesson is i mean if, you, if you're not looking after your people not creating that supportive environment a mentally safe uh, workplace organizational culture over time there's the potential for well, the organization to collapse the whole industry to collapse potentially or at least just to suffer uh, significantly anyway that's that's kind of the point here so 
So invest now, spend time now looking at this. Like this isn't an overnight thing. This isn't a, this isn't a one hour resilience workshop is going to, by a former sports <laughs> star going to resolve any of this. It's uh, <laughs> there's an awful lot more to it than that. A huge more amount to it, Brian. And I think that's why a lot of workplaces kind of get frightened by it to the point where they don't do anything. And one of the problems that we have seen, especially with the logistics industry, unless you are a big transport organization or part of, you know, a transport department within a large organization, you know, like the big supermarkets, they generally don't tend to have HR. They don't generally tend to have managers who were there for as people managers. You'll have a transport manager who is just all about making sure that, you know, the deliveries get done rather than actually supporting the people in there. So there is this massive gap in who's actually there to focus on the people. These are humans (laughs) driving these trucks and they probably invest more in the trucks than they do in the humans driving them. So you may have all these wonderful trucks out there that look amazing and I see this quite often, but no, but there's no one there to drive them. You know, so we have to learn from these lessons of how it how it doesn't work. It can potentially cause a huge problem. And we are already starting to see workplaces giving people a week off, have a mental health week off. If you have a mentally healthy workplace culture, people don't need a mental health week off. Preventing burnout doesn't happen by giving people a week off. Yeah, burnout and psychological injuries are caused by prolonged duress of stress. Yeah. It's it doesn't just happen because of a busy, busy month. <laughs> exposure to hazards over a prolonged period of time. That accumulation is the issue. For those listening in that would actually would like to make a difference, to make an effort to do something here, the long-term investment, where, where can they go to find out more about those you, Emily, and uh, Our Minds work? Brilliant. Our website is very simple. It's ourmindswork.com. And I'm always active on LinkedIn and we have a page on LinkedIn as well. So my name's Emily Pearson and you'll find me at Our Minds Work on LinkedIn. And we also have our Minds Work page on there as well, where we tend to be active the most. Perfect. I'll share all those details in, in the show notes as well, Emily. And final, final question for you then. It is the WorkWell podcast how are, how are you or are you managing to spend time at the moment on your own well-being? Now, I know you spent, you had a nice weekend there in, in Sky. <laughs> well, what, what does kind of the normal week look like? Is there exercise in there? Is there time for, for taking a break in there as well? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I am a human being like everybody else. And sometimes I don't even get it right. You know, we, we, we're just all humans trying to get through this thing we call life and sometimes it's easy to do things like eat healthy you know get some exercise and then other times it's not and sometimes all we need to do is just lay on the sofa for a couple of hours and do very little but one of the things that is a constant as you can probably tell from behind me is I love plants Mm -hmm. indoor plants outdoor plants other people's plants looking at plants taking photos of plants plants. (laughs) and um and obviously the, the the support I have from from friends and family as well so they're definitely two constants in my life Everything else, you know, like everyone else, I, I try as hard as possible. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Fantastic. Well, I mean, gardening is a form of moderate exercise as well. So you're you're getting that you're getting a bit in there, all right. So certainly that, is that the old bad back. <laughs> <laughs> Weeding for an hour, definitely. <laughs> Emily, listen, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. 
No, thank you. Thank you for having us on. I really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, help to guide people on how they can make work well for everybody in, in the workplace. And if anybody does need any additional support or guidance, you know, we're here to help. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Hey, everyone. Brian here again. A big thank you for listening right to the end of this episode of the WorkWell podcast. This podcast has been brought to you with thanks to our partners, AJ Products, who are leading the way in ergonomic and active workplace furniture solutions at ajproducts.ie. Original music that you're hearing right now was composed by my friend Greg Clifford. You can check out the website workwellpodcast.com where you can access show notes for each episode and also find all our previous episodes. I would love if you could head over to iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. A reminder, you can head to workwellinstitute.org to check out the education programs that we have on offer. You're welcome to share this episode with your friends and colleagues so they too can discover and benefit from the content. And finally, if you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear in the show, you can email me directly at brian at workwellpodcast.com. Remember to work well, stay safe, and I'll see you on the next episode.